Is this like Yippikaye Linux distro? It's kind of that. Like the guy who is trying to open the safe in the movie. He's here with us tonight. Yeah, it's it's Yippikaye motherfucker and your laptop. (laughs) Apple iMac, whatever you are using currently, goes out of the window. (laughs) It's actually like probably a 3 euro external keyboard from a no brand Banda. Well, I in in your case, I would keep the the keyboard and throw away the Mac. We'll be throwing away a lot of things out of the window tonight. It's a movie that needs no in- introduction, so I guess that's it. That's the episode. Thank you for yeah, joining us. Yeah, that's the episode. <laughs> Movies being talked to death. Yeah. Yeah, and and those who don't read episode titles, today we are talking about Die Hard, the first one. Yeah, we could spend all the evening uh, discussing how Die Hard is so great because it's uh, we have this vulnerable everyman protagonist, we have the multifaceted villain, or we have the well-established characters in the first 15 minutes, we have a masterful exposition in the limo and top-notch cinematography, like basically one of the greatest action movies of all time. But frankly, we've heard all that already a few million times. So, let's talk about something else. Well, at least after this one, this very cliché topic. Oh, shit. Let's settle this one. It's the the Christmas movie argument, ain't it? Yeah. God damn it. That's it. So, is it or is it not? God damn it. This is, and this is precisely like, to our listeners, who doesn't have the behind-the-scenes access to the discussions between me and Kari. Die Hard is a movie that we have been talking about doing for, I guess, as long as this podcast has been going on. And I've always refused to talk about Die Hard, because Die Hard always gets dragged upon when we are thinking about what would be our like Christmas episode. And I absolutely, venomously have refused to do Die Hard Christmas episode because I'm up to fucking here with the, the discussion about, <laughs> you know, Die Hard as a Christmas movie. I remember when I first heard the argument something like 15 years ago when when I found my first YouTube video that talked about, like, Die Hard and, and Christmas in the same sentence. And I thought that, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, you you can have one discussion about the thing. Like it has Christmas shit, but it also is a is violent action movie. So does it count? Eh, 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 eh. And then I heard heard the same argument going on the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And by jolly God, like even even last year, around last Christmas, I once again I I went to went to the YouTube channel of The Escapist, which is a video game movie review platform that I frequent. And Jesus Christ, if they're like last Christmas topic video also wasn't like 
is Die Hard Christmas movie. I'm like, ah, give it a rest already. Christ. Yeah. One of the most abused topics when it La- comes to discussing about Die Hard. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next Christmas, I just ask you if Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yeah. And, you know, fine, fine, we can, we can talk about it. Since it's not Christmas, because talking about Die Hard around Christmas time is cliche as fuck, as already established. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I count Die Hard as a Christmas movie. It has Christmas music, it happens around Christmas, there's a whole bunch of Christmas shit around the Nakatomi offices, it has a Christmas party, it has even even Christmas movie themes. Like, at its, at its heart, Die Hard is about three men looking for love. And that's as Christmassy as all hell. Or if, if you know, the film would have been titled Die Hard On, could have also worked as a gay porno. Can't oh. use Dick Hard or Die Hard Core, because those films already exist, and they are both hetero porn. The thing is that I actually was thinking of making a Die Hard parody movie following to my Terminator movie. And it was supposed to be called die harry and the lead actor would have been no other than my mom's ex and his name was harry sounds like porn already (laughs) and the tagline was supposed to be die harry die so is it a christmas movie well it certainly has a lot of christmas elements and very christmasy musical score not just the you know the some of the classical pieces there that are associated heavily with christmas but the Michael Kamen soundtrack does incorporate quite a lot of Christmas stuff. Not only the Jingle Bells thing, but, you know, it also is using those classical pieces in different tones throughout the movie. And Let It Snow, of course, closes the movie. Yada, yada, yada. There's a Christmas rap. There's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony all over the soundtrack. So, yeah, yeah. Well, now that all that... All important stuff is out of the way. Maybe we can get to our personal experiences with the movie. When did you see it first? Any personal deep memories about the film? Uh, actually, no. Uh, I can't remember when I first time saw Die Hard. I must have been when I've been pretty young once again. But I really can't. Like Unlike with, with something like Verhoeven's Robocop, I can't actually place Die Hard into any time period of my childhood. But it ha- must have been pretty early, because I have the feeling that Die Hard has kind of been with me always. I've always liked Die Hard. I just remember that we were at my grandparents' place, and Die Hard was about to be shown on TV. Probably one of those few first times, if not the first time when it was on TV, early 90s something. And my grandparents, at least my grandfather, he had decided, as he always seemed to kind of at random points, decide that, okay, this is the movie, that this is the moment that we're going to record a movie from TV to the VHS, the glorious format. I just remember afterwards that he said something like, well, it wasn't exactly what I expected. So he was disappointed. I suppose it had something to do with excessive violence and very crude language, I would assume. Okay, so it's not the case that he read the book and really liked that one, 
and now was pissed off because of the few differences that the movie takes from, the, from its source material. Yeah, for sure, no. Okay. I just remember, yeah, there was this VHS called Die Hard lying around, and it was some kind of a thing that I was afraid to, of touching. I was very young, and watching it was probably something that I was not permitted to do, but I was always kind of curious about that film, that I, I, sh- I should watch it from the VHS, and then at some point I did, and quite liked it, quite liked it. And I do remember being quite interested about the mannerisms of Alan Rickman in the film, especially the scene which I guess takes place in Takagi's office floor, which is where he displays those kind of very determined movements the most, like how he picks up the gun from the table, uh, how he walks, how he freaking walks. Everything he does there is extremely calculated. The guy is walking around the place like he owns the place, like he knows everything. Everything is completely planned out. I'm unstoppable. So there was something really appealing about that that guy. I thought that was really... I, don't, I can't really say kind of role model <laughs> level behavior, but... Uh, views on the sequels, Henrik. Are they on par? Well, I quite like all of the sequels to this film. Like Die Hard, as we all know, it's, it's a franchise. It's a, it's a movie that has three, three sequels. We don't talk about that Moscow thing that just doesn't exist. It's as dead to me as my illicit son. Yeah, I would say two two sequels at most. I I I'm I'm one of those those weird people, weirdos who actually also like like Die Hard four or four point zero. Isn't that the one where he's 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 fighting against I don't know the four chan. He's fighting on top of uh, some kind of a, something in mid-air. Is he on a helicopter or what? He, he he drives the taxi and collides it against uh, the helicopter. Okay. And then they tr- try to use the, the F-16, F-15 F jet, fighter jet, to take yeah. out McLean. And, and like, Die Hard 4 is, is quite a lot of nonsense. Mm-hmm. It, it really is like the the parts one, two, and three keep the situation still. The realism of, of the movies it starts to go more and more out of the window and more and more into the surrealism or fantastical sequel by sequel. But up until you know part three with a vengeance, it still is at least somewhat grounded. Oh, the action part four is is already like that. That I would say is the superhero fantasy film, hmm. most definitely. But it it still is you know on the watchable movies list at least for me. Okay, I just recall when first seeing it when it came out that I really hated it. A lot of people, a lot of people really hate it, and I I do admit that like from the sequels, it is the worst one. Right. Arguably, it's it's the wor- worst one. And that's the one where he has his son there, right? No, no, that film never. Okay. <laughs> that we we don't talk about that one. Good. The son is in in the 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 Ru- Russian thingy. Yeah. Good day to die hard. Good day to kill a franchise. 
Yeah, which after seeing the film, I was willing to agree with it. Good day to die. But, no, it's... Uh, the fourth one has the daughter, which then is mysteriously absent from, oh, yeah. from the fifth one. And that, also, also, like, like the fourth one, the daughter in, in Live Free, it's weirdly tying in with, you know, the first one or the, or the original source material book. Because in the, in the original book, MacLean or, or John Leland, as, as his, if I remember correctly, is, is titled in the book, he's actually trying to save his daughter. They switch it to wife in, in Die Hard. And then, you know, the whole family is kind of absent throughout the sequels, and then they bring the daughter back in the fourth one. So it kind of does this, like, like a circle thing, kind of weekly. I'm really grasping at straws here to, to draw any, anything deeper about the situation, but kind of the fourth one does circles back into the original source material. Yeah, what, what about the decree to, to which... The franchise is copying itself. Perhaps uh, it, it's a bit of a sad levels of copying. Well, Die Hard 2 came out during the time period when Hollywood sequels just had a one format. Which is do precisely the same shit as the previous film did and change a few things. Like, like set it in a different location and make a couple of half-hearted callbacks. To, to the first film to establish some type of continuity between the films, but essentially just keep on doing the same shit. It's kind of like the, the Home Alone mm. situation, where, where Home Alone 2 was just like, it takes place in a New York and now Kevin is in a hotel, but essentially the movies, it's just, just the same shit uh, for the second time. And that's kind of why what I've always suspected went on behind, you know, Die Hard 2, and why it's so samey to Die Hard 1. Die Hard 3, in my opinion, actually is quite different from Die, from the first Die Hard, and quite strongly stands on its own legs. I would also say that so does also Die Hard 4, even though at times maybe it shouldn't. It, it has like that those weird... CGI action moments where physics go out of the window and what have ya. But at least, you know, that's that's something new and not just simply copying the first film. Oh yeah, the CGI. That's what I remember hating in the fourth one. Yeah. And it's it, it's not atrocious, but especially since we are talking about Die Hard as a yeah. franchise here, it's really noticeable because the previous three films, when it comes to... They are still quite grounded. They're practical with, you effects. Know, yeah, with, with effects and with, you know, just the laws of physics. Things go up, things go down. And, and like, like some type of like common sense rules of physics do apply. Yeah. Even though the films, especially the sequels, kind of stretch these things out... But you can kind of still see the, the, the red line of physic, physical reality going on behind them. But in the fourth film, like, people are jumping and running around walls and, and they go flying because car, car hits a piece of fence and, you know, all kind of stuff. And then there is good day to, to, to die hard, like, 
where you know even even our law laws of common sense no longer apply. Do you feel the same way that when uh, we're talking about action and thriller, the first one is definitely also a, a thriller, and maybe that big argument towards that or what makes it a thriller is the fact that it's more grounded in the rules of reality where whereas die hard 4 is an action movie uh yeah that that i i agree wholeheartedly also i would say that the pacing is more close to a thriller in in the first film well well the pacing kind of works in in the third one also but two and four i would say are like hands down just action films and something that also, most definitely, I think, affects the first one. Why that? Why the first film has such of a strong kind of thriller skeleton un, uh, be underneath it uh, would also be that, you know, the book original is a thriller, not an action adventure. Yeah, I, I think also the characters are contributing a, a hell of a lot to that. I was mentioning about Rickman's mannerisms at the Tagagi floor. And there's a few other things going on there as well. He's trying to keep composure in every situation. He's the cool-headed villain. But then that is contrasted very heavily when you have also the henchmen. The henchmen around him, they start to fall apart when John McClane is doing something. Hans always keeps composure, keeps to the plan. And similarly, when the henchmen, they are questioning why McClane knows so much about them, then... Hans just stays cool and collected and is asking all the right questions, trying to get more information. That's there time and time again, actually, in the movie, that the bad guys are losing control and then, then Rickman is there just, you know, actually kind of irritated about them breaking composure. Yeah, two points from that one. The first point goes to Rickman's performance. Another kind of big thing to highlight from from Rickman is the fact how well kind of Rickman switches between perceiving McLean as a threat. Hans Gruber in the film he never actually sees perceives McLean as a, a real real threat in the sense that he would actually be able to thwart his plans. He kind of sees McLean as an obstacle as long as McLean does have the uh, the detonators. Immediately after McLean loses the detonators and Hans has them, that's also the moment when Gruber and and through him Rickman starts to kind of just forget that McLean even exists. Starts to ignore him, which is is also a nice touch and paints paints kind of a more in complete control of the situation picture of Gruber. In the same way, also like you mentioned. The other henchmen kind of react more strongly to McLean's antics. They get pissed off. They see him as more as a threat and as an obstacle to their plans. And that also is something that you don't always see in action movies. It lends some, not a huge amount, but a little bit more character also to the bad guys and henchmen. In the sense that the henchmen here, they are not just like cannon for their bad guys. Mm. But there is a bit of personality behind them so that you can make the argument that they are at least somewhat human beings 
and therefore when McLean guns them down and all the action happens, there is a bit more weight behind the action because it's not just our hero shooting blank moving targets. And of course, if our listeners are somehow not familiar with the discussion point of Die Hard involving very calculated performance of Rick Manas, Hans Gruber, and then on the other hand, the Bruce Willis playing at the role of John, John McClane as this kind of a, a very sort of a normal, average, everyday man who just happens to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. We can kind of emphasize with that nicely. And when he has glass in his leg, kind of illustrating his struggle, nearing the end of the film, he's at his all-time low. That's something that we I don't think we usually see so much. Maybe not to the degree that it is seen in Die Hard. That he's kind of a desperate and he's willingly uh, sharing to the cop friend that, you know, I haven't been the best person in this marriage and please tell my wife so. Yeah, that is is one thing, one thing that I do think that grants a lot into the legacy of Die Hard. Yeah. And why people love the movie so much. The thing with with action in in Die Hard as so many people have already pointed out this is once again one of those everybody has has this conversation already talking points but yeah. as the action escalates as the situations escalate throughout the movie more and more McLean himself starts to break down both physically and mentally the movie makes a repeated notice on the fact that McLean is tired and that he gets injured th- throughout the movie and that constantly is a danger to his ability to perform yeah. and see the end credits <laughs> of, of of the film. Okay, let's leave it at that. Been discussed before. but Well, been discussed before, but it's also interesting when comparing to it is. other action films. Sometimes I keep questioning... Who is actually the the leading actor? Who who is actually stealing the show here? And I would say that it, in some respects, definitely Alan Rickman is once again kind of stealing the show here. Bruce Willis is absolutely in his element here. So both of them are the success of this movie. Die Hard was kind of at the point of his career when he was still like willing to actually work and actually act in his movies. Yeah, there are, there are a number of Bruce Willis action vehicles where you can just say that the man does not give a shit. <laughs> I thought we could talk about some of the unknowns of the movie. Or if you have answers to this, then feel free to go ahead and share your thoughts. What about the audience? Dear dear listeners, come and comment on our goddamn pages once in a while. So Tagaki says that he has no access to the vault. But is that actually true? So Hans either is thinking that Takagi has access to the vault, or then he believes him when he says that the code cannot be given by him and that he should take a jet to somewhere else to to get that code. So which one is it, do you think? Is he just shooting him because he believes that, okay, he, he doesn't have the information, or because he's bullshitting, or kind of both? I think... It really does not matter to to Gruber. Like like be, be whatever. He's not gonna get the codes from from Takagi. 
And if he would be getting it, it would be only one code out of the several codes, right? That's how I understood it. Yeah. Or at least that's the, the case that Takaki makes. Could be bullshitting. Yeah. But, you know, they also do remark that Takagi's code would have get them through the first step of opening the world. And I don't really know how Takagi would have been expected to open, you know, the rest of the locks. Because it's, what, five or six, seven locks before they can reach the actual world that they have to go through. Yeah. And if Takagi really could only get them through the first one, it's kind of a question like, how in the fuck was uh, anyone in, in Nakatomi <laughs> building a, be supposed to be able to reach the world. <laughs> I would like to talk about the whole calculation with the, the whole timing of things here. From the beginning, Hans Gruber has planned it out so that the freaking FBI will come into play, cut the electricity in the building so that they can get the final lock opened. Okay, that goes according to, to the plan. Perfectly timed. But earlier in the movie, when John McClane is trying to reach out to the police. He is trying to stop that and try to tell that it was a false alarm, blah, blah, blah. So what's his goal at that point? Is he like, mate, we still have like five to seven minutes before we should call the FBI here. So let's cancel this John McClane's attempt to get the cops here because we're quite not ready yet. Yeah, pretty much precisely that. <laughs> What about Hans Gruber himself? He, he was possibly part of an organization called Volksfrei. By the way, all of these organization names, at least they are, they are fictional, but they may be based on some real organizations. Anyway, Volksfrei. And then he was kicked from it. Why? Not known. Was he ever committed to the organization in some way? Did he join it simply to misdirect the inv investigation at Nakatomi Plaza? Did he go to such lengths? Or did he believe in the organization before, but then he decided that it's just easier to become an exceptional thief? Well, in the original book, he is actually part of a terrorist organization. That's one, one of the big, like, the, the few but noticeable differences between the film and the source material. Okay. He's also in the Tagage floor. He says, who said we were terrorists? Well, actually, it was he himself when he announced to the crowd, like on the 30th floor, that, that yeah, 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 we're, we're going to take over this building because the Nakatomi company is doing some unfavorable deeds around the world. But then it is not his real motivation to come there. But it doesn't really make any difference because they are terrorists anyway. Well, they kind of really ain't terrorists. Terrorists would be driven by an ideological motive and they would have a political goal that they would want to achieve. And Gruber in the film most definitely has, like, neither. Well, he's, I would say that if we use it in the sense of the verb, he's definitely terrorizing the guests in the building. He is terrorizing the guests in, in the building, but that still does not make him a terrorist. All right, fair enough. Next one, the mysteries of Die Hard. The emergency frequency or the use of frequencies in this film. Let's talk about it. I haven't seen anyone yet talking about it. So anyway, McLean, he first uses the emergency frequency to contact the emergency frequency people. Then 
Al is trying to call for McLean on that same said emergency frequency. And I guess they keep talking on that frequency then from that point forwards. Because then Hans also can answer on the same frequency apparently. And there probably isn't time for everyone to keep switching frequencies all the time on the fly when they're escaping from the bullets. And, and therefore Hans uses this frequency to talk to the FBI. So it's it's quite crowded on this emergency frequency. At the same time, the emergency frequency personnel are not really trying to stop this. This is now the de facto diehard frequency. And then Al and McLean, they are talking about some pretty personal and somber stuff on, on this channel. And it seems that it quickly gets quite awkward when you think that everyone can hear it and everyone is indeed listening it. Must be, because certainly the LAPD and the FBI, they want to stay in the loop what is going on if they would be smart enough. But that's just, just a, the thing here. They ain't smart enough. Uh, looks like it. This radio, it, it allows these people speaking at the same time also, because it's some kind of a multi-user or multi-channel radio, because it's evident in the moment when the Lapidic guy <laughs> says, you listen to me, you little asshole, and McLean is able to interrupt him real time and says, asshole? But then the rest of the time in the movie, it seems that they pretend to be speaking to a typical two-way radio, meaning you take turns speaking. Does it ever bother you, or do you take notice of that they're, they're probably on the same frequency all the time? No. Um, I usually just either avoid it, or I, I take it just that, first of all, that they just changed, you know, your your average given whatever it is cop frequency that movie cops always have, which is somehow connected to the emergency services, but always, you know, disconnected from the emergency services when car A is talking to car B or what what have you. Mysteries. What about donut mysteries? Well, the donut in the film, you could well, see... Well, first, first things first, what, what, what Al buys is Twinkies and not donuts. Twinkies, okay. The grocery store guy remarks that aren't you guys always supposed to buy donuts? God damn, man, you are on free club. Get your facts straight. I thought you had done your background search and... Is that like, so? Ridiculously gone through every single frame and... Gosh darn it. Twinkies then. I stand here for everyone corrected. This is going to look really bad for me if it turns out that it's it was not Twinkies. You know, we in Finland, we, we don't have those. So, like, that's once again one of those disgusting American foods that we actually can't know what the hell those are. In other news, have you noticed this interesting connections of between the movies of the Timothy Dalton Bond films and Die Hard? They are, of course, only year apart in their release, more or less, so... One year later from this, there was License to Kill, and Michael Kamen, he did the music there too, or Michael Kamen. Robert Davi is in both movies, obviously, and we have Grand L. Bush, who plays Little Johnson, the little cop here, and he plays Hawkins in License to Kill. And we also have Andreas Wisniewski, who is a bad guy here as Tony, and then a year earlier he appeared in The Living Daylights as Necros. So now you know. Yeah, I the, the only one I ever keep noticing is is Robert Davi. 
Michael Kamen do, doing the musics to films is kind of... I never actually paid any attention to it, but hearing about it does not surprise me at all. Seeing how it's, it's Michael Kamen and... Yeah. What movie did he not score? Michael Kamen has a really, really distinct sound somehow. Instantly recognizable. I've heard the rumor that it was McTiernan who asked, came and come up with something more joyful, because McTiernan felt that the movie is so violent that he wanted to splice it up with something joyful and happy, and then came and switched his Beethoven de- decision to, to order to joy. Also, another instrument that you kind of notice came using here, and this once again goes into the whole Christmas film argument, but he uses labels to open open the the score. Yeah, and it's uh, that's a good point, the whole kind of a levity in the film, that we have such of a, I would say, quite violent action thriller, and at the same time you still have and keep the humorous side. Even if you're not so much into that violence, then I think you will stick with the movie. Yeah, this uh, uh, came out during the uh, perhaps the peak period of American action movies, when we had a lot of experimentation when it came to to action movie genre and movie frameworks. Well, let's jump to the quickies. I'm sure we'll have something to share there as well. Who would you put on the performance pedestal? It's kind of tied with Willis and Rickman. Yeah. <clears throat> if if you go with Rickman, I can give it to Willis. Yeah, let's let's do that. I'll give it to Rickman. What worked? Well, a better question perhaps would be what what didn't work because pretty much everything works in Die Hard. And the and action is great. The cinematography is great. Yeah. John McClane getting all fucked up is great. This is what I was thinking a couple of months ago when I just rewatched Die Hard. What really was lingering in my mind after watching the movie was the fact that there's just no wasted celluloid. Every shot is for a purpose there. You know, there is this beginning 15-20 minutes when the film is establishing the the location, the Nakatomi Plaza, which is important to establish. We kind of know all the different floors a little bit before we start the whole bang-bang. I felt that it was incredibly tight. So what what didn't work? Bloody hell, that's a good question. You should always have something to criticize, right? Well, I can start with a point that God, I'm I'm not actually certain if it's a fault against the movie, but it's it's been quite some time when I read the book. Nothing lasts forever, which is the source for 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 the movie, mm. but. I haven't read it. Yeah, but what I remember from the book was that it was extremely grey. Like there was not clear good guy in there. There was no clear bad guy. It was more and more just like people going off against each other. And the the good guys had a lot of asshole moments for them and the, the bad guys did have some well, never truly established, but or confirmed, but hinted at sides of goodness on them. 
the film Die Hard, on the other hand, like like already mentioned, is extremely black and white when it comes to the situation that it depicts. And that's perhaps something that you can argue or you can ponder upon if it's a good thing that the film made it made the situation more clear cut than than the source novel. In a way, yes. Because you lose the shades of grey. On the other hand, it makes the movie perhaps a lot more enjoyable. Most definitely makes it fit more precisely in that Christmas action movie genre slot. That kind of wants to fit itself. So it's kind of like you, you lose something, but at the same time you gain more enjoyable movie. Because you don't really have to think... All, all of the nuances as you are watching it, you can just, you know, champion McLean to take on, take on Hans and his henchmen. So it's kind of, is it a fault or is it a not? You know, everybody can be a judge on that. Yeah, okay, well, it sounds very interesting. That would have been cool, we seeing some, some good size about that, what the terrorists are doing. Well... If I, if memory serves me correctly, the terrorists do kill a couple of the hostages, but the main idea was just to let the hostages go at the end of the day. In in book, it's it's the Japanese company Nakatomi that they target. In in the book, it's an American oil company Klaxon that they attack, and the reason why they attack Klaxon is. Precisely because of the environmental damage that the Klaxon has committed. But also because Klaxon has been doing some shady deals. Supporting, I don't remember what, dictatorial government. It can perhaps even make the argument that Klaxon has worked. Since Klaxon is an American company, it it has actioned in a downright treasonous manner. And the whole 600 million that they are trying to steal in both cases. In the book, their plan is to actually just throw the 600 million out of the window. Because those are... the Klaxon has gotten those money from the shady dealings with the dictatorial government. And they have used the taxpayer money in, in their shady dealings. So the terrorist's plan is to throw the money out of the window so that... Since Klaxon has taken every man's tax money for them and then, you know, had the shady business businesses going on, now they would be returning that money to the average man by throwing it out of the window. So it's kind of like a Robin Hood scenario. On the other hand, the book's John McLean is considerably older and more jaded, at least partly because of that. He takes a hell of a lot more aggressive attitude towards the terrorists. Hmm. There's the the first kill, the next snap, which in in the film is kind of accidental. They fight and they fall down the stairs, and the next snaps in the book, yeah, it's it's downright intentional. And Book McLean has a couple of moments where he just totally point blank just kills a couple of the terrorists, which both are women. Also, the book ends in a way that. Does not confirm, but hints that the book's McLean will die from the injuries that he has suffered. He's alive at the very end of it, but it's kind of like closes off with the note that book McLean could die 
right after you know you you turn the last page. Much mm. like you know his his daughter dies, falls out of the window with with book Gruber. In there, McLean can't save his his daughter in time, and the the dying scream of her of his daughter is something that you know the, one of the last things that he hears. Mm. And all who hear just heroically shoots Carr, the one surviving terrorist, and saves saves McLean. In in the book, he just pushes his boss right in front of Carr's gunfire. So you know, even even he doesn't kind of get away scot free, hands clean. Interesting. Well, I actually do have a couple of points that didn't work in the film, and they are all in the last scene. Uh, it's when Al is blowing up the bad guy in the end. It's such a cringe moment. Look at Al having his arc in the movie. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Cool. That's so cringe. And then secondly, Argyle, when he's saying the movie's final line, something like, if this is how they celebrate Christmas, I gotta be here for New Year's. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm, yeah, Argyle's line is, is cringe. I'm kind of torn with all gunshots. You know, in a way, yeah, you see that from a mile away and it's so blatant. It's not so much about the shooting, but it's the, you know, close-up on his face in the slow Yeah. My God. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, to me, it partly also is is the shooting. Yeah. So it, it's it's so clearly, like, you can't have the arc closest thing any any harder than that. <laughs> the dude, dude once shot a child. Yeah. And then has been kind of a, a, a broken cop because of that, because he has refused to use his firearm, you know, following that shooting. Which kind of you would think that that's a good thing. Perhaps Al shouldn't be on the force. I mean, he sh- shot a kid yeah. after all. And then the film kind of closes up. He, he finally can fire his his sidearm and becomes a full full cop. Once again, you're kind of like, yeah, I I see what you're doing there. I I I saw it the moment that all opened up on about on his his trauma of of shooting the kid. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah. yeah. But then again, at the same time, I'll just get an arc. Well, at least all. there's a lot of arcs. There's some effort on that front. Yeah, and perhaps also the fact that. That Al is there for the whole night, and it's probably not his, you know, assignment for the night. But there, he just hangs with the LAPD and FBI, just kind of helping out. Well, then again, he's chatting with McLean, so he has a kind of a reason to be there, I guess. And then, then again, he is being ordered to leave the premises by his asshole boss, who also mentions that this would be the last night that Al would be a cop. Yeah. There's a scene where, where, where the post tells Al to fuck off, and as he does, you know, make certain that he knows that he's he's fired from the force. A thing that most likely kind of is forgotten as the end credits roll, seeing how Al saves the day, and Al is right that the FBI's stupid plan is stupid, etc., etc. So most likely, like, the asshole boss takes his asshole remarks back. Yeah. <laughs> and... You know, the second film actually confirms as Al is still on the force. 
And he did not get fired. And also did not get any exciting assignments still in the office. or He may be even downgraded. I, I don't know. Oh, he's the, the fax machine guy in <laughs> the office. And perhaps this odd, popularly misquoted line about Alexander. When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Because, on the contrary, he, he did weep. He wept, because there were way too many worlds to conquer. So, uh, uh, benefits of the classical education gone to waste, I guess. Yeah. Classical education is one of those things that comes in from one ear and goes out of the other. <laughs> Describe the film in one word. It's gonna go with the repeating word in this episode. Great. Will this film survive the test of time? Yeah, obviously is surviving. Obviously it, it already has. Yes, thank you, thank it's you. It's ca- kind of more of a question with with the sequels, I would say. But like mm. Die Hard is already so iconic. Well, complete the sentence. You really know you're watching Die Hard when... When your Christmas party is interrupted by you semi-half-retired slash drunkenly removing glass sharks from your feet. <laughs> when you're a rookie, they teach you everything about being a podcaster, except how to live with a mistake. <laughs> how to live with your past as a podcaster. Yeah, or how to live with your podcast. Now that's a tricky one, actually. I'm, I'm still learning how to do that. <laughs> yeah, we like the film. Would we rewatch? Yes, we would. <laughs> yeah, would we course. recommend? Yes, we would. Yep. Would have been in, in kind of interesting if if either one of us wouldn't have liked the film or couldn't recommend it. The first episode that we did was, as it turns out, Rear Window, one of those big classics of cinema. And yeah, that the podcast kind of started with the natural way that it started, that I was kind of the fact machine spewing out a lot of facts and just trying to find all the possible faults that you can find. And when I pointed those out, then you would certainly expand on them and crack jokes on the on the films. So those were the times. But now at this point, we kind of are struggling, I guess, with these, you know big hit movies, because everything has been already discussed about the movies. We're not really into, you know, being the fact-spewing machines here anymore. More about, you know, the, the structure and how the whole ecosystem of a franchise might bind together what are the common themes. But I hope this has been exciting for you once again, dear listener. Yeah, we just have to watch more weird Chinese elephant movies, which tell us Exactly why its director killed itself. That's a good father cannon father for an argument episode. Well, if you think this content was hugely valuable, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts, or you can share this episode with a friend of yours who is similarly inclined. In the next episode, it seems that we're gonna talk about Chinese blockbuster propaganda movies from the last few years. Yeah, the films that you do not see in the sort of a Western-oriented market. Yeah, the best-selling Chinese movies are often hardcore government-funded propaganda, and we'd like to tell you all about it. I feel another elephant argument episode coming right up. 
And remember, as we conclude our cinematic journey through the riveting masterpiece that is Die Hard, let us forever cherish the exemplar of the action genre, which ignited the silver screen with an unparalleled fusion of heart-pounding intensity and indomitable spirit. Stay enthralled, my erudite comrades, and let Die Hard's legacy illuminate the annals of film history with its timeless brilliance. In case you were lacking some fancy words in this episode, there you go. Okay, so that was the most captivating film ever made about bear bonds. Put this one in the books. Very kind of you to tune in, dear listeners. Please do it again next time. Until then. Ja sitten katsoa, että jos löydetään jotain hyviä länsivastaisia propaganda-elokuvia.